Hi, this is Edwin Crozier of the Franklin Church of Christ in Franklin, Tennessee. I want to welcome you and thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. The lesson you're about to hear was a very important one for me. I presented it to the Brethren in Franklin on September 14, 2008, the very height of the election season. I know that some people were upset when they heard the title, For Whom Should a Christian Vote? However, all those who were patient enough to listen to the lesson before passing judgment were surprised at the biblical answer. I invite you to get out your Bible, and let's learn what the Bible actually says regarding for whom should a Christian vote. I don't expect a show of hands on this one. And if you've got one of our note pages, you don't have to write down your answer. But I just want you to think for just a moment. On November 4th, for whom do you plan to vote for president? Maybe you're leaning towards John McCain as he now leads the Republican Party. Or perhaps you've been enamored with the stardom of Barack Obama. Or maybe you're wanting to get outside the box and go for one of the third party candidates and, and vote for this year's Constitution Party nominee, Chuck Baldwin. Now, Mr. Baldwin is pro-life, opposed to embryonic stem cell research, and wants to push for a constitutional amendment to define marriage as between a man and a woman. Or maybe this year you're interested in the libertarian candidate, Mr. Robert Barr, Jr. Mr. Barr wants to end the Iraq war and military efforts in Afghanistan. He thinks that states should decide regarding the definition of marriage. He wants to end illegal immigration. He opposes socialized medicine, will remove entitlement programs, and will uphold your right to bear arms. Or maybe you want to go to the opposite extreme. And this year you're looking to vote for the Socialist Party candidate, Mr. Brian Moore. Now, Mr. Moore also wants to end our military involvement in Iraq and in Afghanistan. He wants to outlaw all weapons of mass destruction. He plans to provide national health care so that all of us will be covered. And now here's my favorite part. He plans to legislate a 30-hour work week with six weeks of paid vacation and a guaranteed pension plan. On top of that, he legislates a minimum annual income for every American adult of $35,000 a year. That means for you married couples, minimum $70,000 a year. Or maybe you remember Alan Keyes. He once ran for president trying to garner the Republican nomination. Well, he's running again this year as the nominee for America's Independent Party. He also wants to promote a marriage amendment. He wants to outlaw abortion. He wants to repeal the 16th and 17th Amendments, which will remove the government's authority to tax our income. He favors a limited government. And on his website, he specifically states his dependence upon God. Or maybe this year you're really wanting to step out on a limb and go for a veritable unknown, such as this 42-year-old candidate from Lexington, Kentucky, running as an independent, Stephen Adams. He is opposed to abortion. He's in favor of a marriage amendment, and he promises on his website that within the first hundred days, he's going to establish a congressional report card, balance the budget, secure Social Security, bring troops home, secure the border, reduce our dependence on foreign oil, which will hopefully then lead into reducing our dependence on oil, period. Now, wouldn't we have liked that this weekend? Or maybe you're leaning towards one of the other more than 350 candidates that are running for president this year. 
Wow. According to VoteSmart.org, more than 350 Americans have filed with the Federal Election Commission their intention to run for the office of president. With so many people running, what's a Christian to do? For whom should a Christian vote? In the midst of all of these people, is there a candidate out there that we as Christians should vote for simply because we're Christians? Or should we back up and perhaps think about this whole election thing from a different light? That's what I want us to talk about for just a few moments this morning. Before we do that, would you bow with me in prayer, please? Almighty God and Father in heaven, we praise your name, and we're so thankful that you've allowed us to live in this great country. In my opinion, the greatest country and nation that's ever been on the face of the earth. And we're thankful for the opportunity that we have to elect representatives to govern us. And Father, we're thankful that you've given us this opportunity this country so that we could live peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. And we pray that no matter who it is that's elected and for whichever office, we pray that they would continue our ability to live that peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Most of all, we're thankful for our King, Jesus, who died for us on the cross so that our sins could be saved. And we pray that you would help us to spread that word of His gospel so that others can be saved. Father, we love you and we thank you so much for loving us. And through Jesus, our King, we pray. Amen. Well, before we answer this question, for whom should a Christian vote, I think the first thing we need to ask is, can a Christian vote? Now, please notice this is can. Not, not does a Christian have to vote, but can a Christian vote? The fact is, a Christian does not have to vote. The Bible never ever once says that Christians have to vote. And I think we need to recognize that. In fact, I find it very interesting that, that I have met some Christians who have never once talked to anybody about the gospel. They rarely visit their brethren when they're sick and in the hospital. They almost never invite anybody into their homes. But every four years, they become very sanctimonious and begin to talk about the Christian's responsibility to vote. And then even further, take it beyond that and talk about the Christian's responsibility to vote for their candidate. Brethren, I think sometimes we might have missed the Scripture's priorities for our lives. But can a Christian vote? I know what it says in Romans chapter 13 and verse 1. Romans chapter 13 and verse 1. There Paul said, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. This passage and also 1 Peter chapter 2 demonstrates that governments are established by God. I understand that some of my brethren believe that means that Christians should not vote because then a Christian is trying to establish the government instead of allowing God to establish the government. Some others of my brethren believe that this means that just voting is pointless, that there's no point behind it because God's going to establish who He wants and it doesn't matter for whom we vote. Now, I respect those positions and, and if your conscience doesn't allow you to vote, then don't do it. If you think it's pointless to vote, then you don't have to vote. That's It's not a big deal. Nobody's going to go to hell for not voting in American elections. It's just... That's just not going to happen. But I will say that I disagree with that logic. To claim that God is doing something does not mean that the work of man is pointless, and it doesn't mean that man avoids involvement. Consider, for instance, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 5 through 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 through 7. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning at verse 5, Paul said, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? 
Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Now let me ask you, who does the work of saving souls? Isn't that God? God is the one that saves souls. You and I don't save souls. But does that mean that we sit on our thumbs and do nothing? Does that mean we avoid involvement? Does that mean that our work in that is pointless? Of course not. Because what we learn is that God, though he is working, works through us. Perhaps we can look at an illustration that comes even a little bit closer to this kind of issue in the book of Esther. You'll remember in Esther that Haman was wanting to destroy the Jews and and he was setting up these political things by which the Jews might be completely destroyed. And Mordecai comes to Esther and says, Esther, you need to do something about this because she's become queen. And Esther doesn't really want to at first. But notice what Mordecai said to her in verse 14. This is Esther chapter 4 and verse 14. In Esther 4 and verse 14, Mordecai said to Esther, If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Here's what I want you to recognize. Mordecai, now God's name is not mentioned here, but the whole point of Esther is that God is behind this. He says, Esther, if you don't do anything, we're still going to get delivered. If you just sit there on your thumbs, God is going to deliver us because God is the one who delivers. But did that mean that Esther should do nothing? Did that mean that Esther's work was pointless? No, Mordecai said, look, even though God is going to work out his plan however he wants it, and if you won't be involved in it, he'll use somebody else. He said, who knows? But maybe for such a time as this you've come to the kingdom. Listen, God is going to establish the government he wants, but, but who knows? that perhaps you've come to the United States for such a time as this, so that your vote for your candidate might elect this person, that God, through you, might accomplish that. So the fact that God is establishing the government doesn't mean that our work is pointless, and it it doesn't mean that we have to avoid it. Can a Christian vote? Yes. Yes, a Christian can vote. Well, now that gets us back to our question, for whom should we vote? Out of all those 350-some-odd candidates, for whom should you, because you're a Christian, vote? You know, it amazes me. I've talked to Christians of all different political spectrums who are voting for all different kinds of people, and yet every single one of them acts as if their candidate is God's candidate, as if they've got the God, God's mandate to vote for this person. And yet the reality is, for the most part, we don't even know what God's position is on president. But I just want to ask you this. Consider this for just a moment. What is God's position on some of the presidential issues that, that we're voting on, that we need to decide about? Do you know, can you give me a chapter and verse on this. What's God's position on states' rights versus federalism? What's God's position on education? What's God's position on socialized medicine? You got book, chapter, and verse on this? What's God's position on immigration? What's God's position on health care? Have you got book, chapter, and verse regarding God's position on NAFTA? You know what God thinks about NAFTA? What does God think about taxes? What's his position on what our taxes should be? Book, chapter, and verse regarding the Patriot Act. You know what God thinks about that? Or what's God's position on Social Security? Or God's position on personal privacy versus national security? Do you know what God's position is on gun ownership? Or what about, see, backing up a little bit, capitalism versus socialism? Do you you know what God's position is on that? 
What about God's position on democracy versus monarchy? Listen, I'll tell you what. When God established the kingdom, it, it wasn't a democracy. Do you remember that? So what exactly is his position on that issue? What's God's position on, and I just had to add this one in just because we're from Tennessee. What's God's position on confederacy versus union? What's God's position on foreign policy? you got book, chapter, and verse on what he says about how, what our country should do with other nations. What's God's position on the energy policy? What about the environment? God's position on the line item veto. you know what God says about that one? Or what about God's position on defense spending? Or this, about the trade embargo of Cuba. You know, it just seems to me that if God was actually really concerned about who you voted for regarding the presidential election, then he would have explained this so that's what his position is regarding all of these presidential issues so that we could know the one that lines up with his position. Now, of course, I recognize that someone's going to say, yeah, but my issues matter to God. The issues upon which I base my vote. Yeah, okay, and God doesn't care about all those other things. But I vote based on values and based on moral issues. And God has told us His opinion about that. My issues really matter to God. Really? Are you sure that your issues really matter to God regarding our presidential election? You know, what most Christians will say is, as I'm voting for the values and morals, but what people who call themselves Christians can't seem to agree on is which values and morals from the Bible are the ones that God says, this is the most important one. This is the one upon which you should base your vote. Now, I recognize that most Republican Christians, and, and for all you Democrats out there, please understand that Christians can actually be Republicans. Republican Christians will tell us that they vote based upon issues like abortion and homosexuality. Now, brothers and sisters, I absolutely understand, and I agree. God is opposed to abortion. God believes that any harm done to an unborn life is just the same as harm done to someone who has been born. Exodus chapter 21, beginning at verse 22, I think demonstrates this. In Exodus chapter 1, beginning at verse 22, the Bible says, When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, strike for strike. There's no doubt that God says harm done to an unborn child is the same as harm done to those who have already been born. And there is no doubt that God is opposed to the practice of homosexuality. In Romans chapter 1, beginning at verse 26, you all know where I'm going here. Romans chapter 1 and verse 26, Paul there said, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. There is no doubt that God is opposed to people having abortions, and God is opposed to people being involved in homosexual sin. On the other hand, Democrat Christians, and for all you Republicans out there, please understand that a Christian really can be a Democrat. Democrat Christians will tell us that we need to base our vote on the candidate's position on handling the poor and what we should do for the poor. Now, brothers and sisters... We need to recognize that how we deal with the poor is, is a, an important value and moral principle 
in God's Word. We know that Jesus in Luke chapter 12 and verse 33 said that we need to sell our possessions and give to those who are poor. You'll remember in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 10, in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 10, when James and Cephas and John gave the right hand of fellowship to Paul, giving him their blessing to go out and work among the Gentiles, in Galatians 2.10, Paul says, only they asked us to remember the poor. The very thing I was eager to do. Now, I know that all the Republicans in the audience there are saying, yeah, but that was individuals. It wasn't about the government. Well, do you remember when God actually did have a government? When God established a kingdom? Are you aware that God levied a 10% tax against that nation in order to help the poor? It wasn't just the Levites. Look in Deuteronomy chapter 14. Deuteronomy chapter 14 and verse 29. In Deuteronomy chapter 14, actually let's back up to verse 28. In Deuteronomy chapter 14 and verse 28, I'm going to give you all a second to get here because I know you don't believe me on this one. Tithe wasn't just about the Levites, despite what we've said. Deuteronomy 14, beginning at verse 28. At the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, why were they helping the Levites? Because they were poor. Because they didn't get land like everybody else. And the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your town shall come and eat and be filled, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. He levied a 10% tax to help take care of the poor and the underprivileged and the disadvantaged. Have you ever read about the policy that God had through Nehemiah? When so many of the Jews, after being restored, made dumb mistakes and got into too much debt, Nehemiah chapter 5, beginning at verse 9. God's policy through Nehemiah. This is a government action. This is a law that was enacted. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we'll restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. When these guys became poor because of their own silly mistakes of getting into debt, the government made a law to help the poor. Listen, we just have to understand this. It is important. It is an important value from God to help the poor and the disadvantaged and the underprivileged. But now here's my question. Which one of those is more important? Which one has God said, now this is where your vote should be based? The second thing I think about here is, does our vote actually translate into God's will really being done? I just, I'll just use one issue as an illustration, and I will admit to you that this is the issue upon which I have most often based my vote, and that's the issue of abortion. For six years, brothers and sisters, we had a Republican president and a Republican-controlled Congress, many of whom were elected because they garnered Christian votes saying they were pro-life, and abortion is still legal. Does my vote actually translate into God's will being done? Apparently not. But even more fundamentally, let's ask this question. How many people decided not to get an abortion because I voted pro-life? Not a single 
one. Does my vote really translate into God's will being done in other people's lives? Apparently not. Do you remember why Jesus came to the world? Jesus came into the world, and if we look in Matthew chapter 16, in Matthew chapter 16, and verse 18, he says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And you remember in Mark chapter 9 and verse 1, in Mark chapter 9 and verse 1, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, there shall be some standing here who will not taste of death until they see the kingdom of God come with power. Jesus came into the world to establish His kingdom, not to affect earthly kingdoms, not to impact the national policies of earthly kingdoms. He came to establish His kingdom. And so he has not directed Christians to run earthly kingdoms. He has directed Christians to spread his kingdom one person at a time. You'll remember Luke chapter 19 and verse 10, which Brent referenced in our discussion regarding the Lord's Supper this morning. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That was Jesus' intent for coming to the world. That's the mission that he has left behind for us, to seek and save the lost. Let me ask you, for all you Republicans... How many people have been saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ because you voted for Ronald Reagan or the George Bushes or even for John McCain? For all you Democrats, how many people have been saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ because you voted for Jimmy Carter or Bill Clinton or even for Barack Obama? For all you independents or third-party endorsers, how many people have been saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ because you voted for Ross Perot or for Ron Paul or for Chuck Baldwin? Jesus has asked us to seek and save the lost. That's what He's asked us to do. My issues really matter I'm not exactly sure that they do. I'm not sure that we can go anywhere in the Bible and find that it says that what God has wanted from us is to make sure we vote in a certain way so that these issues will be accomplished. Which issues? And I think this really gets us to the heart of the matter. And that is that God has never once asked us to spread His will through political means. God has never once asked us to spread His will through political means. In fact, as I look through Scripture, there's only one passage in all the New Testament that I think says anything about some issue nationally that we ought to be really concerned about because we are Christians. And I find this passage in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, 
godly and dignified in every way. You see what issue he says that we should be concerned about? The issue is, will those who govern us allow us to lead peaceful and quiet lives so that we can be godly and dignified in every way? Will they let us serve God in peace? And you notice that he didn't tell us to do anything politically about it. Instead, he said, pray about it. That's what God has said about politics and what our concern should be about national policies and laws. You think about this. What kind of government were the Christians under in the first century? The Republic had died, even though they tried to maintain vestiges of it, long before the New Testament was written. They were under an empire. They had an emperor. And, and what I find surprisingly absent from the New Testament is God's instruction to them to do something politically to try to make Rome a Christian nation. I'll tell you what I do find. I find 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning at verse 3. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 3 it says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Now this is saying much more than just we don't stick a gun to somebody's head and say, do you want to be baptized? What this is saying is we don't use worldly means to pass along the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't try to use the political machinations in order to try to get others to serve God. We don't try to force them to obey God through these physical and material and political means. Instead, we use the Word of God and we reason from it and we persuade them so that they will obey God because it's God's law, not because it's man's. In fact, as I look through the New Testament and I consider what the New Testament says that we're supposed to do about government, I only find a few things. Number one, that we're supposed to pray for them, as we've already read in 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 2. Number two, as we read moments ago in Romans chapter 13 and verse 1, that we're supposed to submit to the governing authorities, no matter who they are, because God has established them. The only exception is that they're asking us to do something that causes us to disobey God. We all know Acts 5.29, where the apostles said we must obey God rather than man. And I'll tell you the fourth thing I find is in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 17. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 17 where Peter said, Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Honor the one who is in the governing authority. He didn't give any caveats for who it was. And may I remind you that when Peter wrote, Honor the emperor, the emperor was far, far, far less godly or, or Christian than any of our candidates that we have today. And yet he still said, honor. This is what God has said that we're supposed to do about government. John chapter 18 and verse 36. Do you remember what Jesus said there? In John 18 and verse 36, when he was standing before Pilate, Jesus said in John 18 36, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Jesus didn't come to establish a material earthly kingdom. Why then do we think what Jesus wants us to do is make America His earthly kingdom? Why would we think that? Jesus did not remove His chosen special nation of Israel just in order to establish another one. Brothers and sisters, God does not save people 
by nation. He saves individuals. Jesus did not die so that America could be a Christian nation. Jesus died so that Americans could become Christians. And so that anyone in any other nation could as well. That is why Jesus died. Are you aware that the Apostle Paul actually had the opportunity to speak to more than one governmental policymaker? We see him before Felix in Acts chapter 24. We see him before Festus in Acts chapter 25. We see him before Agrippa in Acts chapter 26. Do you know what his goal was in those meetings? Was his goal to get them to establish biblical Christian laws? Did he talk to them about abortion? Did he talk to them about homosexuality? Did he talk to them about dealing with the poor and what the laws should be for that? No! His goal was to teach them the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, brothers and sisters, I understand that had they become Christians and submitted, that would have impacted the policies that they established, but that wasn't Paul's goal. Paul's goal was not to try to save Rome by enacting biblical laws. Paul's goal was to save the individuals by passing on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that needs to be our goal as well. And do you for one moment think that somehow Rome was that much different than we are today? Do you think these moral issues are new? Listen, homosexuality was such an issue in Rome that Paul wrote Romans 1, 26 and following that we read earlier. Abortion was common in Rome. And even worse, we might say, or some folks today would say, I think it's the same thing, infanticide. You know, we tried to get rid of partial birth abortion in Rome. They just go ahead and let you give birth and they go and throw the kid out in the field. It was common as they tried to have population control. That was very common. The poor, they had all kinds of poor. All kinds of poor that were there. Probably even uh, more difficult on them because their poverty was often based on class and birth and it was hard to get out of that. But, but what does the Bible say here to all these Roman Christians that they were supposed to do to try to enact some kind of legislation that would make Rome a Christian nation? We just don't find that. I'll tell you what we do find. We find 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning at verse 9. We find God's answer to all these moral ills. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning at verse 9, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. What was God's answer to the moral ills? It wasn't enacting legislation at the national level. It was getting the message of God out to others so that they could be redeemed from their immorality. That's what God's asked us to do. That's where we need to be. I'll tell you what. I think we need to quit trying to save America by enacting legislation to make it a Christian nation. And start trying to save Americans by going and talking to them about the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, 
I think a great argument could be made that one of the worst things that ever happened to Christ's kingdom was when Rome became a supposedly Christian empire. Why do we keep fighting for that today? I'll tell you what I think this means. I think this means we need to get back to saving Americans by spreading the gospel and saving anyone else, no matter their nationality. That's what we need to be focusing on. And, and it saddens me, and, and I'm ashamed that our political leaders of all across the political spectrum try to play the religious card as if somehow they can prove that because of their issues they are God's candidates, as if God really cares what laws they have. But even more so is the fact that we as Christians every two to four years get bogged down in it and allow division to come among us. Brethren, I'm just not really sure that we can find one single solitary thing from the Bible that says God really cares who you vote for on November 4th. God cares how you submit to Him. And God has not asked us to save America by enacting legislation. He's asked us to do His will. You know, if you really want to do something to help the poor, if you really want to further God's will regarding the poor, then get out and help somebody who's poor. If you really want to further God's will regarding abortion, then get out and talk to people about the gospel truth of sexual responsibility. And then get out and help people who've made mistakes and now they're pregnant and they didn't want to be. Help them make the right choice and be there to support them as they keep that baby. If you really want to do something to further God's will regarding homosexuality, then get out and start talking to people who are struggling with that. Show them love and compassion and support as you help them overcome their struggle with sin. That's what we do to further God's will regarding those issues. I think I know why we get all bent out of shape about voting. Because voting is easy. I walk into a booth where nobody can see me, and I push some buttons in order to try to elect some governing official who will force everybody else by law to obey God's will. And then I walk out and act like I've really been a part of God's fight against immorality. Brothers and sisters, we have not been a part of God's fight against immorality when we walked out of the voting booth. We have not been a part of God's fight against immorality until we start taking the saving gospel of Jesus Christ to those who are stuck in immorality. We need to quit trying to save America and get back to trying to save Americans with the gospel. Having said all of this, I'm not sure that I could tell you definitively what God's opinion is on what kind of government we should have, whether a democracy or a republic or, or maybe a monarchy or even a dictatorship. 
I'm not sure that we can go to the Bible and find that God cares what kind of government we have. But personally, I believe that the democratic republic, such as the one in which we live, where we're given the opportunity to elect representatives so that we can have a government that is of, by, and for the people, is one of the greatest forms of government that have ever blessed the face of this earth. And I'm glad to be a part of it. But we have to recognize that's a political and social opinion. That's not a spiritual or biblical opinion. And I do view the opportunity to elect somebody who thinks like me so they can represent me in the halls of government so they would govern the way I would if I were there is a great blessing. And I do take it seriously. And I believe that we are allowed to favor a candidate for whatever reason or reasons we deem most important for the protection and preservation of our country. But what I've learned is that because of experience and life circumstance, you may not view the same issues as important as I do. And the fact that you don't view all the same issues as importantly as I do does not make you less of a Christian than I am. And vice versa. So for whom should Christians vote? To be honest with you, I think Christians should vote for the same person that everybody else should vote for. The candidate that they think will most represent their opinions if elected based on the issues they deem are most important. Without the thought that they will come to their brethren and find out that they're going to be castigated to hell just because you didn't vote like me. Now before I stop, I do need to say one more thing. Because I have no doubt, I have no doubt that if I were not about to say this, that when we are done, someone would have come up to me to try to get kind of a sideways endorsement of, well, you know, Edwin, that really my candidate's right, and this is how they would have begun. Now, Edwin, you said some good things, and I really agree with a lot of it. I appreciate a lot of it. But, but don't you think that Christians should take their Bible into the voting booth? Well, of course I do. I think Christians should take their Bibles everywhere, don't you? I think every decision we make should be impacted by God's law. Of course I believe that. But I'll tell you what I've learned. There are far more biblical issues at hand than the one or two that you or I might have hung our electoral hats upon. And the other thing I've learned, perhaps more fundamentally... is that God has never told us how to spread His will by telling us how to vote. He's told us how to live. He's told us how to teach. He's told us how to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, brothers and sisters, if between now and November 4th you really want to do something, that is important for the kingdom of God and for our nation, quit trying to tell everybody else how to vote. And start telling them about the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. I certainly hope this lesson edified you and glorified God. Let's remember what we've learned. First, 
A Christian can vote, though God has not obligated us to do so. Second, God has never expressed an opinion on most of the issues that are important in a political election. Third, the issues about which God has expressed an opinion are not really affected by political means, which leads us to our fourth point. God has never asked us to spread his will through political means. And finally, what we really need to do is quit trying to save America by making it a Christian nation and start trying to save Americans and folks of any other nationality by talking to them about the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. If you have any questions about this lesson or if you have any spiritual needs, please feel free to contact us by calling 615-794-2359 or you may contact us through our website, franklinchurchofchrist.com. If you're ever in the Middle Tennessee area, we would love to get to meet you. Please join us for any of our assemblies or classes. You can find directions and a schedule on our website. Again, that's franklinchurchofchrist.com. May God richly bless you as you draw closer to him. More importantly, may you richly bless God.